remember one time when I was a journalist at a community newspaper, one of the township counselors in Wellesley Township was an Elvis impersonator. He he had spent much of his life, I mean, I think he had other jobs, but on the weekend, he was an Elvis impersonator. And by the way, I've actually just committed a big faux pas because they don't like to be called Elvis impersonators. They're, what's what's the official nomenclature? They're Elvis tribute artists because you see, no, nobody can impersonate the man. You know, he was he was his own thing. They're, they're paying tribute. Uh, I've actually interviewed multiple Elvis impersonators in my life. I was in the home of Gene DiNapoli once, which is a rare privilege. <laughs> I saw Gene DiNapoli's basement. He was showing me like the belt buckle that Elvis wore in one of his movies. I believe he drove you home as well. He drove me home and Gene DiNapoli, like he had satellite radio and he had a radio station that was all Elvis music. <laughs> like he lit- he truly lives the Elvis lifestyle. It's incredible. That's something I found out from interviewing Elvis in person over the years they they truly they truly <laughs> love elvis they listen to nothing but elvis and also they don't just love elvis's music they want to convince you that he was a good man <laughs> they, they, they are they're like oh and and you'll hear people tell you that he, he ripped off black musicians no elvis gave a lot of work to black musicians in his band and this and this and this They'll, they go on yeah, like never once have i raised this criticism to them <laughs> I'm not going to get into the thorny issues of race involving Elvis. They bring it up. Anyway, yeah, I remember that counselor, Herb was his name. Really nice guy. He used to have an event in Wellesley Township. You may still have it called Cruising with the Stars. So sorry, this is a city counselor in the rural community, small town community where you were a beat reporter. That's right. In uh, Wellesley Township, his event was called Cruising with the Stars. It used to be called Cruising with the King, and it would just be Elvis impersonators. But the market for that was a little bit limited. (laughs) They had to expand the universe is what you're saying? Yeah. So I mean, the the year that I went to Cruising with the Stars, like they had, you know, there was like Dolly Parton and people like that. The, The big one was Bruno Mars. It was like 2013. Bruno Mars was like red hot at that point um but there were still elvis impersonators uh the other thing that i know from interviewing a lot of elvis impersonators is most of them veer older and so they all like old elvis better they'll tell you yeah the kids like young elvis it was old elvis he had soul you know that kind of thing uh anyway i always loved that guy he was technically retired people who are on township council in small towns like that are usually retirees who need a new hobby uh but he still had the pompadour you know, he still had he still had the hair and everything like that. Well, we were talking off mic tonight about various Will Sloan interview experiences, and I was recalling the time where you interviewed Ken of Barbie and Ken. Well, this is one of the great things about working at a university newspaper. There's a mistaken impression among a lot of publicists that university students read university newspapers. And so we would just get offered the most incredible things from the biggest brands. Well, I don't know. I think I... You're going to defend... I'm going to defend student newspapers as an important institution. Oh, of course. They're, but I, they're an important symbolic institution. No, no. People, people read student newspapers. But I was always pretty astonished at the kind of stuff publicists would send our way. Like, I remember once uh, there was some kind of, I can't remember which big telecom company it was that was sponsoring some kind of, I don't know, uh, skiing festival <laughs> on the West Coast. I remember yeah, this. Yeah. That, that, that had some kind of, like, big telecom tie-in or something. And, you know, they were just offering 
something like, I don't know if it was tickets to ski or to watch people ski or like the event had a whole bunch of sponsorship and they were asking for like coverage somehow. Like we, we were going to cover this. I'm they not really, thought they were doing us a big favor. I'm not, I'm not really sure what the like U of T student interest was in this in this event. Well, but. They did, well because it's cool. It's a ski event. And, it, and it's uh, I think Red Bull was involved in some capacity. Right. Yeah. But so, I mean, I used to just delete 99.9% of those emails often to the dismay and uh, incredulity of publicists who on some occasions would complain to the university ombudsman <laughs> and things like that. Uh, or they would leave angry messages on my voicemail because I wouldn't cover their like corporate event that they were like, you know, subcontracted by some big telecom company or something to publicize. So I used to delete most of these emails. But you figured out various ways to kind of hijack this sort of publicity and like, I don't know, turn it against itself. And I feel like the Barbie Ken interview or rather the Ken interview was was one example of that. Oh, yeah, that was one of my favorite times. Mattel had this fun promotion they were doing where Barbie and Ken broke up. Okay. Barbie and Ken broke up. I don't know why. Th- th- this is why. one of those things, like, sort of, sort of interject, but this is one of those things where it's like, you weren't aware that there was even, like, a narrative arc to that universe <laughs> until some publicist <laughs> had the idea. It's like, was it you I was talking with about the McDonald's universe and, like, Mayor McCheese and the Hamburglar, where it's like... <laughs> It's like, wait, there's a story here. You know, I don't even think I was aware of Mayor McCheese when I was a kid. And it's like, you're telling me there's a whole like civic administration here. And like, what's Ronald's role in this? He's like the protagonist. What's the conflict? What's the narrative tension here? Yeah, like, do you remember a few years ago when the planter's peanut guy died? You remember that? But then he was what, reborn. What, Mr. Mr. Peanut? Yeah, Mr. Peanut died, but then he was reborn. What did he as die a, of? Um, tuberculosis. I don't know. Like, maybe someone ate him. I don't know. But yeah, there was some promotion around that like oh no mr mr peanut's dead oh but he got resurrected as a new peanut anyway that's that was the arc of that promotion anyway so so barbie and ken broke up yeah and so there was a big promotion around that and mattel or some publicist connected with mattel was offering interviews with ken that's right phone interviews with ken of barbie and ken fame And I don't know, this is what I miss about university newspapers. I miss getting these emails in my inbox and being like, well, fuck, of course I'm going to do this. (laughs) I was on the phone with this actor playing Ken. You you ask him these questions like, so how does it feel to be broke? You've been with Barbie for so long. How does it feel to be broke? You know, you're a grown man. You're a 23-year-old man asking these questions to to somebody claiming to be the doll Ken, and he's answering, well, you know, uh, Barbie's been a great girlfriend. <laughs> it's, it's, it's such an indignity. I don't know. I thought it'd be so funny if, like, halfway through the interview, I started asking him, like, real questions. Like, you, were, you decided to finally get to the heart of whether, you know, Mattel's Ken is, uh, is pro-choice or not. I did ask him if he's pro-choice or pro-life and and he was really caught off guard by that he was like oh uh oh well uh I mean, you know, Barbie and I, we're from, uh, we're, we're from, uh, uh, he, he said where they're from. He's like, so I, I guess we're a little more on the liberal side there. But really, I just want to focus on, uh, you know. <laughs> well, what was so amazing about that interview, like reading the transcript of it, which, by the way, we printed and like 30,000 copies of that issue or something were, were distributed. What was great is you could tell the guy was actually trying. Like that, that thing you just uh, reminded me of, like, you know, he was thinking on the fly, but he's like, all right, Barbie and Ken, they hang out in California they're probably he's <laughs> yeah he's <laughs> yeah 
I yeah, I asked him what he thought about the situation in the Middle East, and he kind of dodged that question. A few other topical questions, and actually, the one that he was not at all flustered for was I said, you know, it's common knowledge that you don't have genitalia. Did that come into play in the breakup? And he not flustered at all. I think by that point he knew that question was coming, and he was like, you know, I'm just the guy I am. I love being Ken. I'm me, and I wouldn't want to be anyone else. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. No, I, do you remember there was one afternoon where we were in the office and you said you wouldn't believe this i got a i got an invite to the much music video awards and i was like get them back on the phone i i i want to go there yeah Yeah, and you went you saw miley cyrus perform or something i saw miley cyrus and i saw justin bieber i was in the same room as both of them oh my god as well as mike the situation sorrentino from jersey shore okay I remember there was one time on that afternoon where I was I was hanging out with this guy who later went on to be on ET Canada. <laughs> he was ex varsity, wasn't he? He was ex varsity. Yeah. I was looking at the monitor and there was somebody on it and I said, Who's that? And he looks at me and with utter contempt he says Katy Perry? And I'm like, oh, geez, sorry. He was so offended. He was that so offended did. that I didn't recognize Katy Perry. <laughs> Well, th- this is at risk of just becoming the, the Will Sloan story hour. But I'm reminded <laughs> of another piece you did, which was where uh, we discovered that there was the Justin Bieber tourism map of Stratford, Ontario, where, of course, I went to grade nine and ten. Um, That's you know, right. Stratford, Ontario, on its official website, had a Justin Bieber map because he was white hot at the time. Yeah, and, and also the Shakespeare Festival, the world famous Shakespeare <laughs> Festival, had a couple of lean years, I think. Yeah, I saw this map on their website, and I went to Stratford in the dead of winter, where like nobody goes to Stratford in the dead of winter, to go to all the sites on the Justin Bieber map. I remember going to your office and saying, look, the train round ticket is 65 bucks. <laughs> that was a lot of money for me at the time. I said, can can the varsity fund this possibly? Did, did we pay for it? I don't remember. I remember you told me, look, I'm not paying for the whole train ticket, but I'm <laughs> paying for half of it <laughs> some, so, some insight into into me as a boss there folks. so you paid 30, will used to work for me and be my subordinate you paid for 30 bucks of it and i paid for the additional 35 all right well that was cheap of me i apologize I, well i thought so too i mean 35 bucks was a lot of money to me in those days <laughs> anyway yeah i went to stratford and i went to yeah i mean it was great the map had like little stories of all the places there was the chinese food restaurant where he went on his first date and he he spilled spaghetti and meatballs on himself supposedly that's what he wrote in his memoir (laughs) justin bieber's memoir there was no spaghetti there folks it was a chinese food restaurant and i remember taking a really long walk just in one of the coldest days of february to find justin bieber's middle school just walking yeah that's on the edge of town basically i I probably walked for like four kilometers to get to it and then i looked there and i stared at it and i thought oh it's just a it's just a school. It's literally like any school that yeah. in any in any part of Ontario. Did you go to the skate park? I went to the arena. Uh, where he uh, played hockey. Okay, not as interesting as the skate park. I, I don't know if the skate park was on the map. I went to, uh, you know, the theater where he used to busk out of, and I went to a place where he used to like to get chicken fingers. <laughs> you know, I saw I saw a lot of I saw a lot of Justin Bieber's hometown. <laughs> and you wrote about it. Well, maybe we'll include the article, link to the <laughs> yeah, article. Why not? <laughs> well, folks, welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Oh, Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. Uh, I I guess we're flying a little fast and loose on this. We're, we're feeling free-spirited on this one. 
We're born to be wild. People hate us because we represent freedom and they wish they could be free, but wishing and doing are two different things. That's right, folks. The movie that we're talking about is 1969's canonical boomer classic, Easy Rider. This year, the judges of the Cannes Film Festival presented the award Best Film by a New Director to Easy Rider. It's the story of a man who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Easy Rider stars Peter Fonda. It's not every man that can live off the land, you know. You do your own thing in your own time. You should be proud. Also starring Dennis Hopper, the award-winning director of Easy Rider. Co-starring Jack Nicholson. I got to seriously scissor happy beautify America thing going on around here. They're trying to make everybody look like you old Brenner. So it was inevitable that we'd do this one at some point. And I say inevitable because it's just a very obvious movie to do. This was, I think, a somewhat rare occasion where uh, when we started working today, we didn't actually know uh, initially what we were going to watch. And I got to say, I had a little bit of trepidation about watching this one and talking about it on the pod because uh, I'd never seen it. I had only kind of an ambient sense of what it was. I was uh, incredibly anxious that it was going to be bad and that we were going to get a really snarky episode out of it. And I got to say, I I almost wanted to hate this movie and uh, I had a really good time. Yeah, so I came over to Luke's apartment tonight. We agreed that we were going to watch a good movie probably. And so I I came over with a fistful of Criterion Blu-rays. And you said, oh, Easy Rider, what's what's your case for that? And I said, well, I don't know. My case is kind of like, I want to know if there's anything there. Like, I haven't seen this movie since I was literally in high school. And it's a movie that is encrusted with generations of nostalgia. It is this canonical boomer thing. It seems to represent the late 60s, but it also, I think in the popular imagination, kind of represents the failure of the 60s. It feels like this thing, there's... I don't know. Tell me if I'm wrong. It feels like there's this certain air of embarrassment that hangs around Easy Rider. Like there's something just kind of dated about it now. Well, I think part of your case uh, for it and what what sold me on watching it was the question of whether we'd be able to watch it given all of the kind of cultural detritus that it's accrued, all of the baggage, uh, whether we'd be able to watch it in spite of all that and still enjoy it, get anything out of it, whatever. And I got to say, the answer to that question, I think, turned out to be pretty interesting for me because the most interesting parts of the movie, the funnest parts, the parts I enjoyed the most, were mostly not the bits that were explicitly editorializing on anything. I kind of liked this movie for the vibes. I liked the connective tissue of the movie more than the scenes where anyone was speaking. I think for the whole thing as well, both of us were just kind of in awe of how lo-fi everything looked. This movie was made for something like $400,000. I was kind of awestruck at these shots where it's just, you know, Dennis Hopper or Peter Fonda pushing a motorcycle into a shed or something. (laughs) Everything is very unpolished. Most people look... You know, just a little bit ugly. <laughs> I say, well, with they just—they look like real people. They look like real people. Yeah. <laughs> film stars now just all look like they've been like chiseled out of marble or something. Yeah, but film stars were built to be shown on ultra HD TVs. That's why all these Chris's and Ryan's are famous now. <laughs> all these Timothys. All the all the grit in movies today is like airbrushed. There was a shot I noticed ten or fifteen minutes into the movie where it's just a, a shot of Peter Fonda's Stars and Stripes painted helmet, and you can see just actual dirt on the helmet and i was like i love 
love that. I'd seen this movie in high school, and I, I guess I liked it in high school, but it's not like it ever left a huge impression on me. And in the years since, I think the thing that I associate most with this movie was when I was in undergrad, sometimes I used to drink very heavily and stay up late at night with friends, and we would watch infomercials and laugh at them. <laughs> and there was one infomercial in particular. <laughs> oh, man. There was one infomercial in particular, which you can find on YouTube, hosted by Peter Fonda, the star of this film that is like the sounds of the 60s, like a multi-CD collection. It's, it's one of those things that seems to only air late at night when no one's really watching TV and is constantly bludgeoning you with messages of urgency. It's like, make sure to call in the next 15 minutes while supplies last. And, you know, you'll get a discount if you do. And if you call within the next 10 minutes, you get a complimentary, uh, I don't know, Dennis Hopper branded, you know, dish towel set or something like that. <laughs> and this commercial, this infomercial is so exquisite. You've got Peter Fonda in his 60s or 70s wearing a leather jacket and he's on a set and there are lava lamps and there's like a shagging wagon behind him. <laughs> it's, just, it's just cutting in and out of like 60s classics. It's, it's literally Time Life branded. And it's like, oh, yeah, you get some Jefferson Airplane. You get some Richie Havens. Uh, yeah, you're hearing all, <laughs> all this, your favorite classics. You know, the hearing, songs that defined a generation. <laughs> all the leaves, are, all the leaves are brown and the sky is gray. Come on, baby, light my fire. You know, all that, all that stupid shit. And Peter. Fonda is there in front of this like Scooby-Doo mystery machine <laughs> and he's like the 60s was a time of change and protest. <laughs> it was a time of doing your own thing. It's, it's incredible because he's giving you the like time life branded version of the 60s. And now you can recapture <laughs> the magic of the 60s with Flower Power, a three CD <laughs> compilation. Yeah, it's literally called Flower Power. From start to finish, the whole thing really is one of those like what stage of capitalism is this kind of thing. <laughs> to watch, yeah, again, I saw this commercial generously 20 times in, in my undergrad years, uh, just laughing every single time. But to watch it right after watching Easy Rider is like a whiplash inducing experience. It, it hit different. You know, you're like the ACLU lawyer played by uh, Jack Nicholson in, in the movie who tries weed for the first time. But, you know, I think we'll find that it is the logical conclusion of the movie. Like, by the way, there was a sequel to this movie, which we'll get into it. We in are a definitely doing a bonus episode on that. We watched the trailer and I am sold. It's happening. But the Peter Fonda flower power infomercial is the real sequel the Easy Rider. That is actually where the character of Wyatt ended up. Speaking of Wyatt, I should probably summarize the scant plot of the film for those who haven't seen it. Easy Rider, folks, canonical 1969 film. You've got these two motorcyclists. You got Wyatt, also known as Captain America, played by Peter Fonda. <laughs> motorcyclists. And you've got Billy, played by Dennis Hopper. If it sounds like those are names of famous cowboys, that is not coincidental, surely. Also, very loaded that Peter Fonda is the son of the great Hollywood star Henry Fonda. That's right, this is a new generation, and they're taking the iconography of their parents and they're turning it on its head. Driving past those great John Ford desert landscapes as they go from somewhere, I can't remember where, is it California, to uh, New Orleans. They pick up a big cache of cocaine from an actor who we found out examining the credits is Phil Spector. <laughs> Phil Spector is their Literally connection. Phil Spector, yeah. <laughs> the actual Phil yeah, Spector yeah. is in this movie. Incidentally, I think at the start of the film, they go from Mexico to Los Angeles oh, and, then, okay. and then on to uh, New Orleans from there. Okay, uh, thank you. So they go from there and much of the film is just watching them 
drive past these beautiful vistas, these incredible like monument valley landscapes while all the songs you know and love play. <laughs> Born to be wild, most iconically. Yeah, uh, Steppenwolf has two songs in the movie. The Pusher is the other one. You get to hear If Six Was Nine, Hendrix. Uh, the band, let's not forget the band. And again, you know, I was worried because the only thing I knew about this movie was that there was going to be sequences like that. And I was getting ready to hate them, but I got to say, I just couldn't. I mean, it, they are beautiful. They're beautiful photographed the scenery the landscapes the fact that you just sit in these scenes like what i forgot is that it's not just a series of cool montages of guys looking cool it's also just a lot of scenes of like wheat and and the sunset and guys life happening yeah life happening so the first half of the movie are just a series of kind of nothing incidents. They pick up a guy, you know, a guy who we don't know his background. It's a hitchhiker. He's fleeing something and he takes them to this hippie love commune. Heavy spawn ranch vibes to it. <laughs> and they hang out at this hippie free love commune for a little bit. Uh, later on, they go skinny dipping with some uh, hippie girls. That hitchhiker I mentioned gives them a little, a little tab of acid and they say, you're going to want to hang on to this. You're going to want to do this at just the right moment. Yeah, cut it into four uh, at the right moment uh, when you're with the right people. And this is where Peter Fonda has that line where he says something like, I'm hip to time, man, or something. It's so amazing to hear the dialogue. Everybody's saying groovy. (laughs) Everything's far out. Don't bogart that joint. And, you know, you watch it. It's like, when this came out, this was on the bleeding edge. People had never heard language like this in a movie. And then almost immediately it was dated. The other thing that's incredible is this movie was the fourth highest grossing movie of the year or something. This was a popular movie. Yeah, it was behind Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Love Bug, and Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> this was number four. And I don't know, like this movie, it has such a minimal plot. So much of it is just about mood and atmosphere. And it watches like an art film now because of the way films are made today. I mean, clearly, it's a movie that was heavily informed by what was happening in the French New Wave, what was happening in the American underground cinema. It was it was coalesced all of these different art movements that were happening in a lot of different media. It's not the first biker movie either. There was a wave of biker movies, notably The Wild Angels by Roger Corman, that sort of led to this moment. But this was the one that elevated the genre, quote unquote. It was the one that brought in all these high art influences. Watching it, it sounds kind of hack to say but if this movie came out now it genuinely would be seen as an art I, uh, honestly i feel this way about almost every movie of the <laughs> late 60s and 70s like the last time i watched rocky <laughs> yeah you were saying which which is the most mainstream movie ever made it is just the most normal film ever made but last time i watched it i thought this would be a festival movie if it came out now they don't even announce the fight until halfway through the first half is just rocky hanging around philadelphia so, so yes, watching this movie did make me lament that movies like this don't reach wide audiences. Actually, this is what surprised me more than anything about this movie. I expected to watch it and feel, oh, this is corny and dated and uh, kind of embarrassing. But no, there's an energy to it, a vitality to it, a- an intellectual curiosity to the filmmaking. It's very plugged in to a lot of exciting innovation that was happening at the time. And I mourn that this doesn't happen at the same popular level anymore. 
we were talking while we were watching it about how uh, when you look at what people were writing about Bob Dylan in the 80s or what people were writing about Jean-Luc Godard, all these 60s innovators, there's a tone to all of that popular press coverage that's kind of like a little embarrassed by it. They're like, ah, yes, uh, Dylan, who we all loved in the 60s, continues to rock and you can see the ghosts of his of his 60s past in the current music. There's this very condescending attitude towards it. And you sense a lot of this 60s stuff is embarrassing to people because frankly they gave up on it and its continued existence reminds them of the fact that like they failed somebody like bob dylan and uh jean-luc godard kept innovating uh, sometimes with very wildly mixed (laughs) Mixed results results. but but nevertheless didn't rest on their laurels and kept going on others made infomercials peddling the (laughs) peddling the flower power uh (laughs) box set (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah and actually i mean easy rider is an interesting case because all three of the stars did kind of continue, but they had to reinvent themselves for the 80s. You know, Dennis Hopper famously became this burnout, this this tragic example of 60s excess gone awry. And then in the 80s, he reinvents himself as this newly sober character actor who's, you know, ready to work and is a Reagan Republican and all that. (laughs) And Jack Nicholson, of course, in the 80s is, you know, he's the Joker, for God's sake. He's making $50 million a movie. And Peter Fonda's in infomercials. Like there, there was su- all innovating. <laughs> yeah, all of it. And, and, and the, the media was was comfortable with all of them in the 80s because it's like, yes, this is this is the script that you're actually supposed to follow. You do this radical and daring thing in the 60s and then you play by the rules in the 80s. You become the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> Continuing on with the plot of the movie a bit, although as Will says, the plot is quite minimal, and I think that's one of the the charms of the movie and a big part of what it's doing. Eventually, our two protagonists arrive uh, somewhere in New Mexico, and they just kind of insert themselves in a parade in what looks like a small town or a kind of medium-sized city, and they get arrested for parading without a permit, uh, and they get get thrown in the slammer because the squares, the man, don't like them being in the parade without a permit. This is where they finally meet uh, Jack Nicholson, who's uh, in jail for, I guess, drinking too much the night before or something like that. He's done work for the ACLU. He decides to... He's a lawyer. Yeah, he decides to join them on their travels. And he represents institutional liberalism. An institutional liberalism that is just yearning to break free. That's right. I mean, there's this scene which is is pretty funny and would be an awful scene if it wasn't self-aware, where they introduce him to marijuana. And he's a little little nervous about it. Like, at first he thinks... they're offering him a cigarette and then they're like, no, man, it's grass. And he hits it and then, you know, he starts talking about aliens and stuff like that. That was a UFO beaming back at you. Me and Eric Heisman was down in Mexico two weeks ago. We seen 40 of them flying in formation. They, 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 they have got bases all over the world now, you know. They've been coming here ever since 1946 when the scientists first started bouncing radar beams off of the moon. And they have been living and working among us in vast quantities ever since. The government knows all about them. What are you talking, man? Hmm. Well, you just seen one of them, didn't you? Hey, man, I saw something, man, but I didn't see it working here. You know what I mean? They are people just like us from within our own solar system, except that their society is more highly evolved. 
I mean, they don't have no wars. They got no monetary system. They don't have any leaders because, I mean, each man is a leader. I mean, each man, because of their technology, they are able to feed, clothe, house, and transport themselves equally and with no effort. Again, would be an awful scene if, uh, if it wasn't self-aware. I did like this scene. You know, I liked the whole movie, but these moments with the little monologues were less interesting to me than, as I said, the connective tissue of the movie. What I liked most about it was the kind of ethereal and and lyrical quality of it, which really comes through in the sequences where they're just on the road or they're in a parade or just having these kind of random experiences. A lot of the stuff on the hippie commune, there's not even a lot of dialogue. You just kind of see things happening. Some of the scenes that are unfolding, it's not even really clear what's happening. Uh, You know, what are people looking at as the camera pans around them and they're all standing in a circle? We should probably address one of the other big dialogue scenes, which is after they go to just a a small town diner. Uh, (laughs) They are not served at the diner, but there are two tables that are looking at them. One is a table full of straight-laced country girls, all of whom are desperately attracted to them. They love the freedom that they represent. They love their long hair. Look at those cute boys. the The other table is literally like the local sheriff and, you know, like some other square with them and a gang of uh, Nixon's silent majority basically <laughs> yeah 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 and again like you know these scenes uh, you know, there's a number of scenes in the movie like right at the start they they drive up to a motel with, which has the vacancy sign illuminated and the guy you know kind of does a like we don't serve your kind here like gesture you know get a haircut kind of thing uh, and the sign changes to no vacancy and they drive away and give him the middle finger all this kind of stuff you know this is this is where the movie you know I won't say lost me but I was a little less able to kind of just immerse myself in this kind of stuff. This is hippie identity politics. Yeah, I mean, the the it feels, you know, maybe it didn't feel this way at the time, and maybe this is not an indictment of the movie, but there are a few too many of these moments that are just about like, oh, look, the man hates our freedom or whatever. Well, that is more or less stated in the next big dialogue <laughs> scene where they don't really stay in any hotels in the film because they're not allowed. So they often have a lot of campfires. And Jack Nicholson as the ACLU lawyer, who's kind of there, you know, he's their connection. He's the missing link between them and civilization. And he explains to them that you represent freedom and that's what they're afraid of. All we represent to them, man, is somebody who needs a haircut. Oh, no. What you represent to them is freedom. What the hell's wrong with freedom, man? That's what it's all about. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's what it's all about, all right. But talking about it and being it, that's two different things. I mean, it's real hard to be free when you are bought and sold in the marketplace. Of course, don't ever tell anybody that they're not free, because then they're going to get real busy killing and maiming to prove to you that they are. (laughs) Oh, yeah, they're going to talk to you and talk to you and talk to you about individual freedom. But they see a free individual. It's going to scare him. This is kind of a famous scene, although I think it would have been better left unstated. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, during the night, Jack Nicholson, uh, as if to underline the point, gets himself killed (laughs) by the sheriff and his gang who invade their campground and just bludgeon him to death. The last act of the film takes place in New Orleans, where they finally make their big deal. They also hook up with two sex workers who they met at a brothel that Jack Nicholson recommended before his untimely death. One of them played by Karen Black, by the way. And they decide to share that tab of acid, that tab of very powerful acid they've been given, which leads to 
uh, an incredible climactic acid trip. One of the only good acid trips I've seen in cinema. There's a sequence in the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of the movie where they decide to leave the brothel and go to the Mardi Gras celebration. And honestly, we, we, we just happened to be kind of uh, talking over it. And I paused it and wound it back so we could start it again. Because even even talking over it, it was, it was almost sublime and transcendent. It's amazing what the sequence achieves in about, you know, 45 or 90 seconds, or I'm not sure how long it is. They're just kind of stumbling around in awe, and it's this perfect cross-section of American society, and you see the people, and you see authority, and you see industry, and you see culture. And of course, you know, it's all happening in the French Quarter. It's this incredible cultural pastiche. And then they end up in the cemetery, which is where they drop the acid. And then there's this scene you were just talking about, which tonally shifts back and forth between vibes which seem to emanate, you know, beauty and joy and others which are quite sinister and in which the characters seem to be disassociating. Again, watching this sequence, you could probably find it on YouTube. If you haven't seen the movie, just just this last, you know, 10 or 15 minutes is worth watching by itself. But it's incredible that this was like a mainstream box office film. Uh, it really does just look like an art film. It's incredibly beautiful. God, it feels so uncool to be like gushing over Easy Rider. I, I know. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. The most boomer <laughs> film of all time. But folks, I'm telling you, like... <laughs> they don't want you to know that this is a good movie. <laughs> so that scene, the acid trip scene, is followed by the scene that I think cements this is a great movie, which is they've, they've made the big deal. They've got all this money from having made the big deal. Dennis Hopper and Peter Fonda are sitting by the campfire together. Hopper is laughing. He's, he's so happy. He says, we're rich. We've done it. We've done it. And Peter Fonda says, we blew it. And then he just goes to sleep and it really harshes the buzz of the scene. And then the scene essentially ends. Left very cryptic, but the implication is clearly... Well, it's clearly that, you know, now they have the money, this life they've been living is over. They set out on this journey to, you know, be free, but also to find freedom. And Dennis Hopper in the scene says something about how there's, you know, a house in Florida waiting for them now or something. And so, you know, this is the Peter Fonda character basically saying, you know, it's over. We've sold out. Yeah. And he's going to become Peter Fonda now. He's going to be on a late night infomercial. (laughs) Talking about how the 60s were a time of revolution and change. And now you can relive those memories. And that's why the final sequence, which is on its face quite startling, but I mean, spoiler, you know, they're both killed in this completely random, you know, there's another one of these incidents where there's two, you know, yokels or whatever, driving a van or a pickup truck or something. And one of them's like, oh, let's, let's scare these long haired hippies. And he, you know, fires off his shotgun and just like kills Dennis Hopper instantly and then kills Peter Fonda a couple seconds later. So, you know, the two heroes of the movie are killed right at the end. But I think the thesis of the film, I think it's kind of final conclusion is that it doesn't really matter because they would have been dead anyway. These yokels saved them from a life of becoming Florida yuppies. <laughs> Again, it feels quite embarrassing. You know, I thought we were going to be, be doing a very different kind of episode. It feels quite <laughs> embarrassing to be doing a, a, an episode of Michael and us in gushing praise of Easy Rider. But we had a great time and we're not going to lie about it. <laughs> Easy Rider uh, was, of course, a trend-setting film that continues to influence culture to this day, and not just infomercials. Listeners might be interested to know that in the year 2012, a sequel, or, or perhaps it was a prequel, or perhaps some sort of parallel film, but an officially branded additional chapter of the Easy Rider cinematic universe was unleashed upon a weary world. It's called Easy Rider The Ride Back, and I just want to quote from the Wikipedia page. 
Easy Rider The Ride Back is a 2012 drama film and a prequel, okay, to the 1969 film Easy Rider. Although none of the cast or production team of the original film were involved in its production, the director, Dustin Rickert, did secure the legal rights to the name. The film focuses on the history of Wyatt Williams' family and takes an unusually conservative point of view compared to the countercultural tone of the original. We, we have to watch this movie. Leonard Maltin has called the film a bomb <laughs> and has described the film as a, quote, staggeringly bad attempt to cash in on the iconic original, unquote, and that it is, quote, poor on all accounts, unquote. <laughs> I mean, we watched the trailer for Easy Rider, The Ride Back, and... So, I mean, the, fu- the funny subtext of this is that this Dustin Rickert fellow is, I think he's just a rich guy. <laughs> he's just a rich boomer who liked Easy Rider and liked, obviously didn't really like Easy Rider, but he just, he liked the poster. <laughs> he liked the poster of the two of them, you know, on the Harleys. And he liked, he likes the song Born to be Wild. Yeah, he's just, he's the guy that owns the Flower Power box set. And he's... <laughs> Yeah, and he was like, "What? What if? What if I could be an Easy Rider?" Yeah, and he's he's read that he's read the Time Life definitive 1960s issue or whatever, and he's read like the hacky sentences about how you know the the, the quest for individual freedom eventually you know fatally crashed on the on the rocky shoals of too much free love or or, or whatever. And now we have freedom and responsibility, <laughs> baby. It's a very groovy well, combination. Well, I was gonna I was gonna say, well, I was gonna say if you were gonna make a sequel to Easy Rider, the much more interesting uh, way of doing it would be, you know, you represent the final sequence of the film in which they're both killed, you know, just just kind of write that out or, you know, maybe that's just rewrite write it like that didn't literally happen. It was a poetic metaphor or something. And then, you know, set the sequel in the 1980s. Both of them are Reagan Democrats. They live in Florida. <laughs> and see, that would be a boring movie, but... The, the sequel opens with the last scene of the original, and then you hear a voice that says, and cut, and you see the, the clapper, they get up, and, and they take off their makeup, and, and then it cuts 20 years to the future. Or 30 years to the future, or 40 years to the future when he's doing the infomercial. Yeah, and see, then it's a commentary on how, you know, Reaganism ingeniously hijacked both the revolutionary and individualist currents of the 1960s and channeled them into consumerism and social conservatism. That would have been a much better movie. Anyway, we watched the trailer for Easy Rider, The Ride Back, and... Oh, man, it was like a Tim and Eric version of the movie. It was incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cheap looking. And he also, this Dustin fellow, uh, is also attempting to make a a greater statement about the 60s, a more sort of uh, self-conscious statement. He plays the brother of Peter Fonda's (laughs) character. And uh, I mean, we'll have to watch it, but somehow the implication is like, Oh, it was a time. It was a time in America when brother fought brother. So I think the implication is that he served in Nam. (laughs) There's some like Vietnam footage in the trailer. And it's like, yeah, while while Peter Fonda was off. This is what I'm predicting the movie's about. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. When Peter Fonda was off, you know, being a hippy dippy. Uh, his brother. Other people were fighting so that he could enjoy this freedom. <laughs> exactly. But, but, but. They were doing their duty for Uncle Sam. But maybe, maybe they were both ultimately failed by the generation that came before them. Right? Right? Because that way this Dustin fellow can claim some solidarity with the cool hippie bikers in the movie that he loves so much. He can be like, well, listen, I may not may not be with your hippy-dippy stuff, but one thing that we can agree on is being anti-authoritarian. Well, we're going to have to watch it and find out. If you're not already subscribed, patreon.com slash Michael and us. Uh, check that out in the next couple of weeks. We'll probably have an episode on that. And order it within the next 10 minutes, and you can get an additional CD that has even more of your favorite 60s hits on it. If you're going to say-
In the late 60s and early 70s, everything around us was changing. How we looked, how we dressed, how we felt, how we thought. The songs in this collection were the anthems for those changing times. It started in San Francisco, came of age at Woodstock, and changed us and the world forever. Time Life presents the complete 8-CD Flower Power Collection. And now you can preview the entire Flower Power Collection in your home for 30 days for just $12.95. You'll get 135 original hits by the artists who defined the love generation. But wait, be one of the first 500 callers to order with your credit card and get free shipping and handling. And there's more. Call in the next 10 minutes with your credit card and get the Summer of Love. Two CDs with 40 of the greatest hits from that once-in-a-lifetime summer. So order now with your credit card and enjoy all 10 CDs in your home. You can preview all 175 incredible hits on the Flower Power Collection for 30 days for just $12.95. It started in San Francisco in the mid-60s, but before it was all over, music, all kinds of music, was changed forever. Turn the water, shade off and remember, if this isn't the best collection you've ever heard, simply send it back and owe nothing more. But keep the summer of love. It's our way of saying thanks. Call 1-800-731-8343 to preview the Flower Power for $12.95 plus free shipping with credit card order. Call now and get two free bonus CDs.